Hi, and welcome to the Faith That Does Justice podcast, the official podcast of campus ministry at John Carroll University. Join us this semester as we hang out with some of your favorite faculty, staff, and alumni as we try to figure out what it means to live out a faith that does justice. I'm Ann McGinnis, and I'm joined today by Dr. David LaGuardia, Professor of English at John Carroll University, Rachel Schratz, alumna with her MA in English from John Carroll University, and currently working as, as an editor for AHIMA Press, and um, as well as Anthony Shoplick, a PhD candidate in the Department of English um, at Loyola University, Chicago. Thank you all so much for joining today. How are you doing? We're doing wonderful. We're <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> Thank you. Before we ask Dr. LaGuardia a few questions, um, I just wanted to ask Rachel and Anthony, who are both alum and very involved in uh, campus ministry. They're now recently married. Um, congratulations. Can you just tell us a little bit about your life um, right now after John Carroll? You know, what have you been working on recently and what are you up to? Sure. What are we up to? Well, uh, as far as what we're working on, um, we recently got involved with actually something that was started at John Carroll. Um, we are now on the board for a program called Writers in Residence. Um, it is officially a nonprofit organization serving um, not just Northeastern Ohio, but other parts of Ohio now too. Um, so we are both involved with that. That's awesome. I emailed, I um, interviewed Zach Thomas on the podcast as well, and he was awesome. So we talked a lot about that. We're just thrilled that it has gotten as big as it has, and we are now just dreaming that it'll continue to grow. Yeah. And you were one of the founding people, Rachel, weren't you? Both of us were, yeah. Both of you were? That's really cool. Yeah, we're hoping it'll spread west towards Chicago so we can partake <laughs> again. <sometime>. Yeah. <laughs> so that's one of the things we've also been recently trying to learn Spanish together. Um, <laughs> to say since we know that Anne, Anne McGinnis can speak <laughs> yeah because you lived in South America for a while right that's yeah yep. so but we're, we're newbies I mean Rachel's much more advanced than I am but Amen. that's one of the other things we've been up to and that's then cool. yeah and then one of the, the other things that we were talking about um in kind of preparation for this meeting just um our own spiritual life together and um just like time the space after John Carroll, uh, well, you've been gone from there for a year and a half, and mm -hmm. I'm two and a half years out now. Um, because we were both so involved in all this different campus men stuff, you continued during grad school with different things too, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and so we were talking about like what kind of places and, and people and things have kind of filled that, that gap for us, because it is something that you really feel after you leave Carroll. Um, one of the things I was thinking about too was like, I remember walking around the quad and waving to like every other person, right? Mm. And like in the real world, you don't wave to every other person. <laughs> That's well, we, we try um, sometimes, but yeah. in the city, you don't get a wave back away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, so one of the things that has been really great for us during the pandemic is that we found um, a parish downtown, Old St. Pat's that we don't go to, but we, we listen in on, um, and they have been um, a real a light for us, I think, in a lot of ways. Uh, the music they have is wonderful. And this is, again, Old St. Pat's. Um, if you look it up online, you can easily see their masses. The music is great. Um, the, the homilies are really, um, you know, on topic and, and pointed and, and thoughtfully mm -hmm. written. Um, and so- They have a pulse to what's going on in the world and they can speak to it and, um, bring both peace and hope, especially in such a crazy year. Um, and it's just so vibrant. Like for perspective, when we started watching, I think there were like a thousand viewers and now there are over 4,000 every week. So it definitely has made an impact on not just us, but others like internationally. There are people tuning in, I think from like Ireland. And yeah. So it's a very vibrant community. Anthony and Rachel had one of the most successful uh, CFCs, which are the Carroll Faith Communities of all of time. They just had a very vibrant group that stuck together the whole time and they did just such a beautiful job leading. You left a, a, la a lasting impression on many people. So we miss you. Um, and I'm glad that you can find a way to fill yourself spiritually in, in the big city. 
Anything else you wanted to add before I switch switch topics? I just want to say that I'm one of those people that they've have, that they've impressed. So oh, uh, it was their 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 absence is is noticeable. Aww. Certainly in my life. That's wonderful. Well, I had um, you know, I had written to Dr. LaGuardia several months ago asking him for this chance to talk with him um, before he retired. And after I listened to his wonderful last lecture, I realized so much that what he loved about John Carroll and teaching was his students. He just, everything about what you remembered always came back to the classroom. And so I thought it would be so fitting to have his, you know, two former students on with us. Um, thank you all for being here. So we prepared a few questions, um, but I, but before we start with the questions, we ask everyone on the podcast if they could just start by reading a prayer or a poem, and then um, that would be a good way to just settle ourselves and to start us off, and maybe you could share with us, Dr. LaGuardia, why you chose that piece, please. I'm not going to say anything about this. I'm just going to read it, and then uh, you can ask me questions. Uh, this is called During Panic Attacks. Mother of God, here's what I want to do. I must peel away these fears from my brain, place them in a common paper bag. I must carry them in my mind to Bethlehem, find your place, knock on your door. I want to see your face when you see mine. I want to recognize that, that you see how troubled I am. I want you to invite me into your small home. I will observe while you slice bread on a board, then bring me water from a well. I want to remember that you are ordinary, that you have to clean a house, prepare meals day in, day out, change diapers, sleep beside a man. I want to hear your voice talking about how difficult it is to look too far down a road when you know what is at the end of it. I want to notice smudges on your skirt, wisps of hair out of place, sweat beads on your forehead. I will spend the day. We will speak of little things, the weather, the price of food, the aches and pains of waking up. At the end of it, I will apologize for barging in, take my bags into the road, wish you a good week. I will be surprised that the paper bags have lost their weight. With a certain peace, I will remember our visit. I will embrace calm. I will want to come again. Amen. Thank you. That was very powerful for me as a mom who's always <laughs> changing diapers. <laughs> we, tap, we tap into your motherhood. And <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's 95% of my day. <laughs> so why did you choose the piece? Uh, actually, I wrote it, and a, a long time ago, um, I don't know how long ago, but it was in going over the questions this afternoon uh, about ha having to read a prayer. I had chosen a selection from a passage from from All the King's Men, which was very powerful. And then I remembered that a long time ago, I had written a collection of things which were called prayers for special circumstances. Yeah. And, um, you know, I have one for in moments of despair and for the terminally ill and for newly pregnant, uh, uh, for the imprisoned. Um, and what in, in looking at them again for the first time in many years, I, I, I realized why I had written them. And it was because I felt that we tended not to see the person of these people to whom we pray. We tend, to, we tend not to see them in their humanness and we, we put them on statues or, or freeze them in time or freeze them in moments of specialness biblically and forget that they were people. And it seems that that's what's most impacting to us as the people reaching out to them, uh, that they hopefully were not unlike us, but like us. And so that's that's why I chose it. What did you say? You said that um, you wrote them for a special kind of thing. I titled the collection "Prayers for Special Circumstances," and 
what would happen is over a time when I was writing them, I would think of a new circumstance and go and do another one. And I don't think I have all that many, maybe 10 or 12 or so. And, and some of them are poems and some of them are reflections like, like this one that center on a particular issue or pain or agony or, or something like that. So there's one for, that I mentioned for an alcoholic and, and um, uh, so that's, that's how they came about. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing that. You're welcome. <laughs> I think so much, you know, we, we do think of the saints as just, you know, utterly holy. And then, you know, 95% of the time of my day is just like cleaning and cooking. And <laughs> <laughs> exactly. To be reminded of that um, was really healthy. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. I'll turn it over to Rachel. Um, so another question that we wanted to talk about uh, was on reflection, um, which I think is key to a lot of humanities um, and something that is a huge part of campus ministry. Can you comment on the importance of reflection in your own life? Um, it's a hard question really, uh, because it's, it, it's so, um, there's a sense in which it seems to me that that uh, although I will sit and meditate frequently, and I think I do that especially when um, the world is coming in on me, and and uh, the need to to just sort of calm not only the mind but the rest of you, uh, and and that that's sort of both reaching out and reaching in, and and so I I, I do that a lot. I I do it. Um, sometimes very consciously and sometimes I think subconsciously uh, because you get into the habit of reaching into, into your own deep thoughts and, and um, trying to order them in a way that just isn't slipshod and in a way that isn't, isn't sort of by the numbers in, in the way they roll out of, of you. So, so um, I could probably do much more structured reflection in my life. Um, and maybe I'll have time now to do it more. Uh, but but in terms of just deep thought, there are there are certainly the morning is an important time for me, and um, and and you know sitting alone in nature is an important time for me. And um, uh, when there is some special issue or problem that I have to either do or face, uh, then reflection sort of opens the door to action and and um, sometimes you feel too much of the urge to act too quickly uh, and and then and then nervousness comes because you're not really mentally and emotionally ready to do that uh, so, um, so so there <laughs> thank you I thought that your the act of writing your last lecture must have been, you know, tremendous reflection because you presented us with this grand tour of campus life at John Carroll from 1968 to the present. Um, you know, more than 300 faculty, staff, alumni, family were there, also the president of John Carroll. So, and I know that you were thinking, you know, as you were writing, I think you were thinking of all these people in mind, although of course the classroom and the students um, took over. So thank you for all the wisdom you shared because that, that in itself was one and a half hours of amazing reflection. Yeah, it's, it's interesting for me to look back on it from the perspective of looking forward to it <laughs> because um, I really, what, as I was, as, as, at first, it was just mostly nervousness because I I was so busy with the courses that I was teaching, and I didn't know how I was going to to fit this in. And uh, as it as it loomed, and and as it seemed to be becoming much more serious than I thought it was going to be in terms of the nature of the event, um, I thought we were going to have this closed little pocket, um, and it just kept it just kept expanding. Well, that that sort of expanded the, the pressure. But luckily, I, I did start to work on it two weeks before and so would spend 
you know, an hour or so a day. And, and actually the, the idea of it was originally just to isolate. I was, I was going to create a, a, a large classroom which was going to cover all of those years and, and, uh, and would have, you know, the various parts of it divided among, you know, people from way back and people from close up and to just sort of create the image of, of what a classroom is and how it works and what it can do. And, and that gave me the peace of mind to know I had a place to go. And then it turned out it went in, in almost completely different directions. And that little, that, that large issue never, never became much of a part of it. But it was, it was, it was great for me to be able to do uh, and to think back and remember some of the amazing incidents that occurred over time. It was fascinating. It brought tears to my eyes, probably on five different occasions, you know, and as you, you said in your email, I hope in a good way. <laughs> I mean, I just kept thinking like, what's in a life? Like, what is the essence of a life and a career, especially in one institution? And, and sort of you would say something that would just strike a chord, you know, emotionally, I would think, wow, this is it. Like, this is one of those little nuggets, those little secrets of life, those little wisdom chips, you know, that you live your whole life to get. So. Yeah. And, and it's, it's really interesting. And I'm sure you all know this, that the, the process of, of creating a writing is that you, you, you find one of these kernels that, that stands out to you, but you, you didn't know how relevant it was until you sort of dress it up and you look at it really closely and you remember all that was around it and then you create the words of, you know to, to, to convey it and and um, and that that becomes a, a really moving personal experience because you, you you the memory itself was just the nugget and then and then the words give give a kind of coloring and pleasure to the to the to the nugget and um, and you hope that if anyone happens to be the person remembered <laughs> that you're not offending them. I was I was really worried about that. Um, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, and and to be perfect, well, yeah, I was worried about it. <laughs> <laughs> not there, I can tell. <laughs> we'll turn it over to you, Anthony. Yeah. Um. So one of the, the questions that um, is kind of a mainstay on this podcast um, has to do with your, your spiritual background. So um, what were the kind of spiritual influences on the early part of your life? Well, you, you have, you have, how long is this? Three hours? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, you know, as I was thinking over how to approach a question like that, um, I, I had to go back to, my childhood, and and I was uh, the second son uh, in a family of four children, and um, two two boys and two girls. And my mother was a, a you know pre-Vatican II, very committed Irish Catholic woman, uh, who whose whose goal in life at the time was to have all of her children have a vocation, um, and. And she would pray for vocations. You know that was that was what what was supposed to happen, and was the best blessing that a family could have. And 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 so so I was brought up. You know, you know I was in the choir, and I was a server, and I did all of the traditional things: the Stations of the Cross, and the three hours on Good Friday, and and it was a very very specific. Um, Catholic youth, and uh, and my brother went to the seminary after the eighth grade, uh, mm -hmm. and, and which is what happened in those days. You know that they would somehow somehow be mature at twelve <laughs> or, or or thirteen or so, and off they would go to the minor seminary, and and then he would come home for summers and things, and and it was just presumed I was three and a half years younger than my brother. It was just presumed that I would be next. Uh, and I don't know what it was on a particular day. It was something in the way my mother asked me a question uh, and the way I didn't quite answer it as enthusiastically perhaps as she felt I needed to that caused her to decide to send me to the Catholic high school 
where Anthony went uh, oh. in Pittsburgh instead of instead of me going to to the minor seminary. Uh, my brother eventually did become a Capuchin priest in Pittsburgh and stayed in the order for until his mid thirties and left then legally um, and and married and had had two wonderful children uh, and um, and I did not uh, <laughs> so uh, I, I sort of and, and and so that was kind of the, the beginnings of a rather interesting spiritual journey for me uh, it became conflicted as most spiritual journeys do I think and uh, I moved away from the church for a good long time. I'm, I'm now an acting practicing Catholic, but I, I'm impatient with a lot of the Catholic church um, and, and somewhat angry uh, as some people are um, with aspects of it, but, but in terms of sort of reaching back toward, toward the goodness of my mother, always praying that we would be saved and, and good people. Um, I, I'm, I'm thinking I'm living out what she would hope well thank you for sharing and one of the reasons i loved listening to your last lecture was because you spoke about a life um lived so fully and you know i'm going to dare to ask you one of these really big questions of life <laughs> that i think about often i just turned 40 um you know as you sort of end a decade and start a new one you just think to yourself what's in a life you know 10 years just flew by and now i'm 40 and and, in ten, and the next 10 years are going to fly by god willing if i'm blessed to live 10 more years and i'll be 50. um and so you reflected deeply on 50 years and you concluded that your time at John Carroll had been very fruitful. So what, what is most important in life? What really matters when you look back at time? Hmm. That's like, what's your favorite novel? Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, you know, all of the standard answers I think apply here. And, and those would be that you hope that you haven't hurt many people and you hope that, that um, you've done more, more, more good than not. And, and, um, but when, when you look back, it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a pretty complex answer. There's so much emotion in, 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 in living. Um, there's, there, there's a tremendous amount of mistakes and error in living, and and um, you you really hope that you know as you're as you're moving forward that a that you're able to recover from those um, because they're inevitable, and that you're able to live in the now, and yet with the knowledge and remembrance of 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 the, that aspect of your of your past. Uh, and that you can bring the experience that, that you learned through the process of, of moving into your now uh, somewhat to those who are around you. And, and not, not directly by talking about it, but just by example or by, by, by the way, I suppose the way I would do it in a class is, is you know, you're constantly bringing up things that perhaps the class doesn't even know you're bringing up from your own past uh, and sharing, sharing it as an example of the point that you need to make in the, in the moment. And, and it's that it's, it's so, so, so for me, it's to, it's to mostly live as fully in my present as I can. And um, with, with this consciousness of, of, of the past, but to say, you know, that's not a very good answer, I don't think, Anne, but it is what I've got. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'll turn it over to Rachel. I mean, I would hate to answer that question. I don't know what I would say. I was going to say, you said you're 40. All right, it's time. <laughs> 40. So. <laughs> your children are in your life, right? Yeah, right now it's all about relationships, you know, my children. Yeah, of course. My family. That's just yeah. a stage of life. Um, one of the things that we've talked a lot about is this issue of voice um, and the role of accompaniment in the classroom while students are trying to find their voice. 
I'm curious if you could reflect on that journey for yourself and if there is a defining moment or moments um, in which you found your own voice. Do you mean specifically in a classroom, Rachel, or are we back in, are we back in life? <laughs> um, probably in the classroom, but however you want to interpret it. Um, yeah, that's a really good question. I, I, I think that, um, you know, I mentioned in the, I, I think I mentioned, oh, I know why well, I mentioned it, because my, my nephew had sent those silly pictures that, <laughs> that uh, reminded me that I was in drama when I was in high school. And um, there is an aspect to being in plays that has to do with voice. It uh, has to do with projection and has to do with hearing yourself speak words that aren't part of your own thoughts. I mean, they're memorized words and you are, you are, you are listening to yourself and, and that, that can be awkward. Uh, and someone is trying to bring you out when you're just totally young and new at this. And, and so I have, a, I have a feeling, and I just thought of that recently, that that, that probably influenced me in ways that I didn't even realize. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of being at the university, I remember when I was a graduate student like you were and a graduate assistant uh, and sort of being in the classroom for the first times uh, that I didn't like hearing myself and you, 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 and in not liking hearing yourself, you tend to listen to yourself uh, too much. And in listening to yourself, you don't know what the heck you're saying and, <laughs> and you lose the thread and you, and, and then you try to cover for yourself and you've got this little melodrama going on, which is the opposite of spontaneity and the opposite of just thinking, thinking alive, you know, dynamically. And, and, and so I think it was when I, I began to realize that I shouldn't be trying to be somebody else's voice. I shouldn't be trying to imitate voices of the professors that I really enjoyed. Um, when I was an undergraduate, I should just be who I am. And, and I think that uh, that kind of helps you to relax into what you're doing and to relax into the, to the issue of the day, whether it's whether it's this poem or this line or this Im image, and 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 then you can instead of sort of posing your your being, you know, and those are two different things. I think that's like a, a perfect encapsulation of my first year teaching experience, and then also I was a TA this past semester, and it's just like it, as soon as when you're too self aware of yourself mm -hmm. speaking, right. You, you begin to doubt and you're like constantly second guessing. And you know, I, I think that's, that's helpful for me to hear kind of as someone who is who's hoping to get into this, this game someday. Yeah. <laughs> it was so liberating when I had that moment myself, like when you just accept yourself for who you are and yes. say, this is what I have to offer. And you yeah. know, yeah. and it was, it was so freeing because you yes. spend so much time worrying that you're inadequate, you know? <laughs> Take me as I am, you know. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> and I think yeah. it's hard, especially in academia, because I'm constant like I was constantly comparing myself to a professor that was 60. And there's no way that someone who's 33 is gonna know what somebody that's 60 knows. But we offer different things, you know. I had just exactly. been back from Latin America 20 times, you know. The professor that's 60 probably hadn't been exactly, you know. So I just sort of came to realize like, oh, I offer different things, you know. Well, and, the, and the, the, the part of it is, too, that you, that self-consciousness never quite disappears <laughs> so, yeah. that, so okay. that, you know, you, you continue to compare yourself and you continue to, to, to question your adequacy and all of those things based upon something that happened yesterday or something that someone said to you today or something you didn't know that you should have. Or, uh, and, so, and so that, that kind of insidious insecurity uh, just just doesn't quite go away but maybe that's part of the health of it all uh, that that that's what that's what uh, keeps you aware of of just being yourself and and um, trying to you, you have to fight the, the sensitivity and the, the sense the oversensitivity to those kinds of issues mm -hmm. yeah. it also sounds a lot like humility and what gave way to a pedagogy that was 
student oriented as opposed to lecture based. So. Yeah, that's, um, yeah. Do you think most people are lecture based, uh, Rachel, or not? I, I mean, I, because what happens is when you, when you're not sitting on so many other people's classes, you, you don't really know what everyone is doing. You just do your thing. Um, but the students know what everybody's doing, and and that's uh, which is which is really they're they're that's the privilege of being a student. I think they might not might not realize it as much, but they really have a sense of of, of the wider spectrum. Yeah, um, I think it was a mix. I think John Carroll tended to strive for um, like a true seminar experience interaction. Yeah, but I definitely had classes that were half lecture, half some discussion. And I know maybe you can speak better to that in your graduate courses in a different university, but um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's hard to achieve you, <laughs> whether or not uh, you were doing it consciously, which I think you were doing it very consciously, you made students feel like we had control of the classroom um, in a very liberating way. So I think that's what's very different. Yeah. Well, and so one of the well, things I tried, I tried to give a voice, but sometimes they didn't take it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> one of the things you said a few minutes ago was that your lecture was at first taking the direction of like answering this question about what can a classroom do. Um, can you say a little bit more about that? I, I hope it's okay to kind of improvise a question. Right oh, now. of course, anytime. Like, what, what did you mean by that? Um, say, say that again, Anthony. Do you mean just now or earlier? Yeah, a few minutes ago. No, uh, a couple of questions back. You said something about what a classroom can do, like what what that setting is kind of capable of. Oh. Uh, so I, I didn't know if like you had thoughts already, kind of lingering from a, an earlier iteration of the the presentation. But you know, I, I what I I think in the presentation I tried to say that. Um, I didn't want to idealize the classroom too much because, um, you know, there, because there's some hard things that happen in, in the classroom and, you know, for whatever combination of reasons and, and, but, but when, when, one of the things that always made me sad as a, as a professor was when people would continually, not, not just the one time that you weren't prepared, Anthony, uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> uh -oh. Truth comes out. <laughs> <laughs> but when when they were continually, you know, sort of not present, not there, not with the material, that that they didn't know what I knew. And what I knew was this could this this can be electric. This can really ignite. But but part of that fire depends on you, you know. And so how can I bring you to this. And, and so uh, when I failed most, I felt as a teacher, and it's easier to reflect now that I don't have to do it anymore, uh, it is when I would try too hard to produce that fire um, and would become impatient that they weren't picking up their part of the of the of the building. And, and, uh, and if I if I could be conscious of that and get rid of that impatience, you know, and then back off, I would find that sometimes by just speaking really directly to them about, okay, here's, here's why I'm upset. Here's why this is hard. And here, here, here's what, what you can do to help. That that would almost in, inevitably bring the class around and, and suddenly something not so good became really good. Uh, so, so knowing what a classroom context can be and how wonderful it can be when there is that that trust and that sharing of voice and that that interaction that just is so magnetic and dynamic and you know it, it can reach that uh, but but it doesn't every time and each time you go in at the beginning of each semester you wonder if it will happen this semester or in this group or or whatever and so it's always this energy and trying to bring about that that which you know can be can be so grand. I'm I'm getting ready to teach my first literature class in the spring. All right. So I, I, I taught composition and um, so yeah, I'm secretly all of these questions that I'm asking are actually just so I can, you know get the inside scoop. 
Um, <laughs> another question uh, related to these kind of like pedagogy, how to how to deal with students in a way, um, or how and how to um, you know make them make them feel welcomed rather than kind of you know um, pushed upon or like you said kind of make them feel like they weren't carrying their part of the of the kind of load. Um, one of the the stories that you talked about in your last lecture had to do um, with a, a young woman who you caught in the act of plagiarism during an, an exam, right? Or during a final a final paper, I think. Um, and, and you you left that um, kind of reflection, saying that you that was something that you regretted that you you learned a lesson from that moment um, about putting the human person first, um, and so one of the questions kind of coming out of that, emerging from that is how might we learn to always put the person in their inherent goodness first in these kinds of difficult conversations? Um, um, forget your ego. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think that's it. I mean, I think that um, whenever we are hurt by people not being prepared or are hurt by people plagiarizing or are hurt by people taking advantage of us. Um, we tend to become egoistically involved in that issue and, and it's kind of hard to avoid. Uh, and the, the need to, to um, teach to that moment might not be the best thing to do, you know, uh, so, so that you, you, this is, this is the errors that I was talking about earlier, you know, the mistakes and the, you know, that our lives are filled with them. And sometimes we project upon others in their mistakes, you know, those aspects of self, which we might have, you know, regretted years and years ago. And that, and the, the, that cannot be a good, a good, mix. Uh, so I, I think it's to, to, to look at students freshly and to look at students in, in, their, in, their, in their present situations. Um, I, I think I mentioned in the talk that, that it, it, I remember hearing a long time ago uh, several folks that I passed in the hallway and these were people in the English department and I have no idea who they were, um, but they were just sort of rapping, you know, almost like standing by the water cooler and, and saying, I can't believe that they don't know what a comma splice is by now. I, you know, for five years I've been, well, this is the student's first time in their class. So, so that we bring in our impatience with having to do it again and again and again and again. But for, for this particular group of students, they may not know that again. So the, so the need for patience and the need not to say, I can't tell you how many times I've taught this to other people, that just alienates. It just pushes them away. It just makes them defensive. It makes, them, it makes, it makes their, their mistakes seem old hat or trite or whatever. And it just isn't a good learning context. So just to, 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 to Again, to see them freshly and to see them to see them as as uh, um, to see them as your own projected children, you know, <laughs> that are going through this for the, the for the first time, and you wouldn't want some jerk like Laguardia to be yelling at them, you know. Uh, I'm I'm noticing a sort of a theme. You know, you're saying that one of the big life lessons was to live in the present, and now you know, sort of an answer to this question is to forget your own ego. It sounds almost Buddhist or or Eastern. Um, are you influenced at all by Eastern traditions? You know, I I I am a little bit, but I'm I'm not. I mean, I've certainly um, I've read the Three Pillars of Zen, and I, I, you know, I've. Uh, but I think that a lot of this, a lot of the, a lot of Zen type things, um, and I've read, you know, the poetry of Heifetz. I don't know how familiar you are with some of those wonderful poems. Um, just come naturally. I, you know, I don't, I, I think that um, some of it is also in Christianity too, in, in a big way. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's just called by different terminology uh, and, and, um, 
but but I think that the the whole idea of of peace and silence and and reflection and um, is 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 nourishment. Thank you. I have a, another question, um, second to last one before we conclude. Uh, the podcast is called A Faith That Does Justice. And I think that at the heart of justice, at least in the Jesuit tradition, is a deeply reflective contemplative self. Um, and I remember five or six years ago, we were at a senior mentor lunch that campus ministry was hosting and you were invited by a student to be their mentor at lunch. And we ask all the mentors to stand up and give a bit of advice um, to the mentee. And there was a quote you said that struck me at the time as sort of almost abrasive, but in a way that sort of woke me up. Um, <laughs> and I didn't, I can't you remember it five years later, it must have been abrasive. <laughs> well, it was something to the effect of remember that stress causes disease like eventually disease. So I was wondering if you remember giving that advice and if you can expand on it, because um, it sort of struck me that at, at a sort of a moment of senior, um, you know, graduation, you were reminding people that, how, you know, how toxic stress can be on the body and on one's life. Um, and, and that was your parting words. So I thought that that was impactful. Wow. Uh, <laughs> you don't remember it? I, you know, I, I can imagine that I would have I would have said something like that and and um, and I and I think I believe it too that that is um, I, I, my sense of um, many of our students in my experience, especially in the last 10 years of my teaching is that I have seen more stress mm -hmm. among among students than I have ever seen before. And this is not just um, passive and banal stress. These are really important issues that that um, some individuals are 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 going through, uh, life-threatening issues. And and um, and and so we, you know, we know. I, I think that maybe stress causes dis-ease. Um, relationship between the dis disease and disease. You know, is, is is kind of trite, I guess, but but at the same time, it's it, don't be stressed becomes a platitude for us, and it's too easy to say that, and it and it, it it becomes cliched, and and so we tend to pass it off and don't don't believe it, but uh, it's really not good, you know, and 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 being, you know, sort of being aware of awareness, being aware of the fact that you that you are stressed or that you're experiencing it and reflecting upon the fact that you're experiencing it is the first step i think to to perhaps doing something about it and and uh, I, I can imagine myself thinking that as these folks were moving off into their lives that to take stress with them into those future lives where things were really up for grabs and what am i going to do next and I, you know it could be i'm not sure what the context of that comment was in terms of what was already said but if if i was hearing it around me a little bit uh in terms of what people were saying about worrying about this or that what was coming next that i might have been led to say something like that contextually but um that's for you to remember Anne. i'm sorry <laughs> I can't remember the full quote, but it struck me as, as why. You, you might have it on film somewhere for all I know. Right. <laughs> no, we don't. We don't. <laughs> but I agree with you. And I actually asked the counseling center because since I started teaching, I've noticed just, you know, every year the stress is getting higher and higher. More yes. students come to me saying like they have depression, anxiety, you know so many things are on the rise that I asked the counseling center, like, are you seeing trends nationally? And they said, yes, like nationally, the trends are up as well. So I know that it's not just John Carroll campus. Um, and I always think about that. Like, what can we do to help students? Um, you know, it seems like so much is weighing on them, at least with grades, you know, oftentimes students sort of equate to like their, their personhood, like their you know their worth as a person with the grade they get in the class yes, which i always yes. try to separate it you know like you yes. know you're a great person even if you get a b like absolutely absolutely that's uh, that's really true 
how to, to sort of um, separate, you know, your work from your, your person might, might be one of the ways to, to, to help. But I know students are under financial stress that, you know, it wasn't really around as much in my time, you know, all the loans that they have. And so I think that contributes to the stress around the grades as well. And we, I suppose we can err most, you know, those of us who are, you know, involved with them in classes, we can err most by forgetting that they have these very complicated lives outside of the class that they're living and, and the challenges are, are, are huge. And for us to, from their perspective, put so much of an emphasis on what's important to us, uh, you know, and not to recognize these other things that are going on. It's, it's a hard balance. It's a hard balance because, sometimes the very commitment to what's going on in the class can be that which relieves the stress of the rest of it. And if, they, if they're able to bring themselves totally to it, that they can walk out feeling uplifted, I think, um, and, and are able to contextualize a little bit better what, what else is going on in their lives. Um, but but it's, a, it's a hard balance. And um, more and more folks are coming in with doctor's notes and things like that, which you never had before or rarely had before. Right. And, and, but now you realize that they are under, they're under care and um, yeah. are, are willing to, to express that to you. Mm -hmm. I think one of the lessons I learned from John, my boss is mercy. You know, as you sort of a newly minted PhD, you come in and you think you have to be so strict and hard. And John was, Absolutely. John was always like mercy, you know. <laughs> they turned it in. It's okay. Was like, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, that, that's a good principle. Well, and that gets back to the, you know, I caught the culprit that forgot the human. I mean, right. that, that it's this, it gets back exactly. to exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Rachel, do we do you want to ask the final question? Make it a good one, Rachel. Oh. <laughs> or anything you want. It doesn't have to <laughs> anything you want to ask, Rachel. The floor is open. <laughs> Oh man, anything. Are we still yeah. um, I have to go now. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is perhaps not, I don't know. Um, going back to your last lecture, one of the things that you said, um, you were reflecting on retirement and you said that re this retirement was for your wife. Can you talk about any plans for what's next? Or even how you're feeling about what's next? <laughs> um, Lisa is 14 years younger than I am. Uh, and so uh, I'm much closer to the end of things than she is. And, you know, at least by the charts. Um, so, you know, there is a hope that we can both be healthy uh, enough to, to she's, she's a, a chief of staff for the Dean of the Medical School now down at Case. And, and she's been thinking of moving away from that for um, for a while now, especially since the dean has changed has changed hands and there's a new there's a new sheriff in town and and so um, uh, she's certainly going to be shifting back. She would love for us to get into some sort of. She's really involved in in coaching, especially coaching uh, women leadership roles within the medical schools and, and things like that. And, and she would love for both of us to somehow sort of get involved in something like that together um, in consulting in some way. I don't know if that will, if that will happen in quite that way. Um, but before we do that, I think we just want to have time together where we can even visit family. We have thought for a long time of just getting on a train. I, I've my children are both out on the West Coast and, and taking a train to, to Seattle and then down to San Francisco and then and, and back. That's, that sounds like a fun thing to do, although people who have gone on trains for a long period of time say it's not. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so reality keeps striking. Um, and, and then I have family on, on the East Coast. Um, my niece has a really nice place on the water which we had planned to go to in January if possible but I think the intensity of COVID might make us more cautious about about making that trip uh, so but but you know all if all goes well uh, we'll be doing little things like that and I think the little things are what matter now thank you for that bit of wisdom
<laughs> Did you have anything you wanted to ask um, Anthony or Rachel before we conclude? Anything you wanted to bring up too, Dr. LaGuardia? I, I, I wanted to pose the same question to you. I want to hear Anthony first. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I have anything to say. On the record. On the record, yeah. <laughs> Um, Do you have anything to ask them, Dr. LaGuardia? Or um, well, I, to ask them, um, I, I, I think that I'm just happy to see them together. I, 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 I said to them at some point not too long ago that I, I feel like the patron saint of their marriage because um, they, they kind of, you know, one introduced me to the other, I think, you know, both as a, as a teacher, and then both of them sat in... Um, probably at least at least four to five classes each and maybe more um, on the undergraduate and graduate level and and so then all of a sudden that you know they were a couple and all of a sudden they were married and, uh, and to watch all of this happen was uh, was a great pleasure and and so they are fine human beings well, I agree it was fun from my perspective too and uh, best wishes I, I love the first thanks for bringing everybody together Ian that's oh. really yeah, I'm so glad we did. And the first year of marriage was just the best. Um, I mean, I love having kids, but you don't have as much time with your partner. So yes. Yes. I just savored like all the laughs and all of the great times together yes. that first year. So really enjoyed. It's a blessed time of life. Thank you, Dr. LaGuardia, for um, your last bit of words here before you retire. We caught you on the possible last day of the semester. You really did. <laughs> grateful for your time and I've always been fascinated by um, sort of the deep reflection that goes on in your department um, through getting to know you and, and Dr. Metris and and how much you know in campus ministry we talk about reflection and reflecting on one's life and and what it means and and sort of you know using reflection to guide our, our lives and our choices um, so that we're not just blindly, you know, following the crowd, but, but we're rather taking time to be deliberate and intentional in the way we live out our daily lives. So thank you for all you've shared. And I just wish you the best of luck in your next phase of the journey. Thank you ever so much. And it's been a pleasure to do this. Thanks for bringing me in. Well, you're welcome. Our pleasure. And I'll, I'll sign off here. Uh, thank you to all the listeners for listening. Um, have a very Merry Christmas and stay well and stay healthy, everyone. Thank you.